Georgia Football, Classic Cinema and Omelets Podcast with your host, Steve Shafini. Steve. Thank you, elderly Jewish me. Sounding good, as always. This is the Internet's number one podcast for Georgia Football, Classic Cinema Analysis, and Omelet Recipes, conveniently called Georgia Football, Classic Cinema and Omelets. I'm your host, Steve Shafini. Week six, the midway point. Big show for you today. Georgia wins, beats South Carolina 28-14, in a game that was, quote, more interesting than it should have been. That's from Kirby Smart, not from me. I don't know how interesting it was, but it was just like we couldn't deliver the knockout punch. It was kind of a frustrating game. So do you, you ever step in shit and be like, hey, I smell shit? And then you scrub it off on the curb, and you're like, I'm good. Then you smell it again in the next block, and then you, oh, you so I missed a spot. You scrub some off, and before you know it, you're walking like your third block, and you still smell dog shit, and it turns out it's in the crevices of your shoe. That was like what this game in Columbia was like. We just couldn't. Get rid of the shit in the crevices. Eventually, you got to take out the stick. And with 133 left, a one-score game to hapless South Carolina, who lost to Kentucky, you got to get that stick in there. You got to jam it all up. Get that crevices. Get that shit out of your shoe. And we needed an ill-fated onside kick returned by Terry Godwin for a touchdown with a minute 33 to spare to put the game out of reach for good. But it is a win, and we'll take it. Especially after getting blown out at Ole Miss and the horrible, unspeakable tragedy. At home last week in against uh, Tennessee. And it was like kind of like a comedy, but a horror movie. Like there were things about it that were horrible. Like Jacob Easton's day, 29 yards passing, the worst since 1990. Uh, the pick six was horrible. And there were things that were hilarious too. Like the clock mismanagement at the end of the half. Brent Musburger calling Jacob Easton, Jason Easton. And this annoying sound from South Carolina that kept playing over and over again. It's so grating. So it's like a horror comedy. So we're going to look at horror comedy movies. Traditionally, you know, every year on this podcast, you know, we look at horror movies this time of year. And I know we're going to get a lot of letters from all our hundreds of fans. Um, But we're going to look at a bunch of different movies real quick instead of concentrating on one movie. Because there's so many horror movies that have so many good talking points and a lot of overlap. And we're talking about the subgenre around the early to mid-80s, horror and comedy. And people say, oh, horror and comedy, like Scream? No, we're going to go back 15 years before that to the best of all horror comedy movies, An American Werewolf in London, which I think is the perfect werewolf movie. Yes, even better than Silver Bullet with Gary Busey and Corey Haim. We'll be making ham and cheese omelets? Hmm? Huh? Now, um... You know, testing uh, Trader Joe's scientists keep testing what actually food can be pumpkined. They have, like, fucking pumpkin tacos and shit at Trader Joe's. So I have one theory that you can pumpkin anything, and my other theory that you can put anything in an omelet, and they intersect. Pumpkin omelets? No, you didn't. Fuck yeah, we did. 
pumpkin spice omelets. I didn't know there was such a thing. I got a recipe for it, and we're going to try that. In fact, we're trying it right now because I already browned the pumpkin. I didn't even know if you're supposed to. It just looked kind of weird to me to throw raw pumpkin in it. Uh, so I browned it yesterday, and I put a little bit of seasoning in here. And this is important, too. If you got to do a little bit more prep than our usual omelets, get some flour, cut some uh, slices, and you just drench them in flour before you throw them in. That's pretty much the gist of it. Everything else is our standard omelet, and I'm going to season this with a little bit of nutmeg. I don't know if this is going to taste weird or not. I don't know if it really goes with omelets. But we're going to try it because we're the Georgia Football Classic Cinema and Omelet Podcast. It's not afraid to try new things. Okay, with the crack and just putting this over a medium flame, we are good to go. Good news is Georgia wins 28-14, and we've been waiting to say this all year. We can finally say it. The Georgia rushing game is back, has a big game, offensive line, is great. Uh, Chubb runs for 122 yards. Sonny Michelle runs for 133. And Brian Herrion adds 82 yards. So it's the first time since Todd Gurley and Chubb two years ago. We have 200-yard rushers in the same game. So you think of that, and it's, well, that's a blowout win. No. But, and there's always a but with this team. Passing game, invisible. Uh, Jacob Beeson, it's not to say he had a bad game. He had a historically bad game. He threw for 29 passing yards, the lowest by any Georgia quarterback since 1990. The pumpkin omelet wasn't even invented yet. That's how far we got to go back. So they kind of cancel each other out. Georgia has yet to have a balanced game on offense. You know, we can either throw 55 times and beat Missouri by one with no running game, or we can just keep it on the ground all day. But we haven't had both uh, all year. And... It was just like one of those annoying games where we just couldn't deliver the knockout punch. South Carolina kept hanging around, hanging around, and you can't let a good team hang around at home. Luckily, South Carolina is not a good team. Uh, dead last in the SEC in rushing. They're now 2-4 and four with Tennessee, Florida, Missouri, and Clemson left on the schedule. So if you're one of those Georgia fans still holding a grudge against Coach Rick for the 2013 recruiting class, still think we're a little understaffed at wide receiver and offensive line, granted, South Carolina's recruiting classes for 27th and 19th the last two seasons, so help is not on the way for them. I guess the old ball coach was a little too busy hitting the links to recruit the last couple of years. So Muschamp's kind of in a no-win situation, but boo-hoo fucking who. That's life in the SEC. First half, Georgia dominated the line of scrimmage, dominated the run game. South Carolina couldn't get anything going, and it kind of felt like it should be 31-0 at the half, and it wasn't. They just kept hanging around. There was a sequence at the end of the first half where Kirby just ran out of... It was just a debacle. Again, that's his words, not mine. Uh, running the, letting the clock run out while we're going for another score at the end of the half. The other score would have been huge, could have put the game out of reach. And this is where not having a kicker really comes in. Three turnovers. That's the good news. We forced three more turnovers. George is near the top in plus-minus, which you remember the defenses under Willie Martinez and Todd Grantham were always near the bottom. This year, we're... Second, actually, and might I add, six sacks in the game. We had five sacks all year. We have six sacks this game. So there's some room for, uh, you know, there's reason for us to be happy. There's some improvement finally. So why was this such a close game? And again, it comes back to Eason. Just couldn't get anything going in his defense. Isaiah McKenzie dropped a short touchdown, but he had the six-yard TD pass to, I think it was also McKenzie. Uh, Nada was a non-factor. He was just Missing his guys all day, he was just off, and he got bailed out by the running game. Usually it has been the other way around so far this year, but we're not going to beat the good teams unless we can get more balance. So it's kind of weird. The play calling 
we always have to go to Easton when we have to. It's like the run game shuts down, we're behind 10 points like we were in North Carolina, and you have to start throwing the ball. You have to start airing it out. And Easton just looked tentative and out of sorts all day, nothing going through the air. And that sequence at the end of the half was a real – I mean, I looked at that. I'm like, God, if we, if we blow this again, you know, I don't want to be the guy who says we didn't win by enough. But it, was, it wasn't comfortable, and this team just can't do anything easy. Yeah, I'm encouraged by the running game. I'm encouraged by the six sacks. And I got to say, a lot of those were garbage sacks towards the end of the game where Perry Orth would just sat in third and long and just waited for the defense to come to him. They were coverage sacks. But again, we'll take it. It's a win, blah, 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 winning ugly, whatever your cliche is. And we're here at the halfway point, and if you're looking at the rest of Georgia's schedule, there isn't a game that you look at like, oh, we can't win that. But if you look at the Nickel State win by two, and Missouri win by one, you can look at that same schedule, the same remaining games, and say, we could possibly lose every single one. So we're at the halfway point. We're, we're halfway into this team, six games in the Coach Kirby Smart era, and it's really hard to get a read on this team. As a gambler, I wouldn't go near him. I wouldn't touch him. And Brent Musburger did say, this is an extra point that really matters to a lot of people. I guess uh, he's like Pete Rose. He's got some action on the game because that made it an eight-point game. And the line was seven. The extra point allowed us to cover the spread, which, again, as I said last week, uh, road favorites don't often cover in the SEC. This one did. Brett Musburger sounded like a senile gambler. It sounded like the old guy that you bump into at OTB. He was like, a lot of people are going to be interested in that. Wink, wink. Like, everybody knows what he meant. It was all over the Internet. And then he, like I said, he called Jacob Eason Jason. And there was a ball. It was a punt that was down inside the five-yard line, clearly inbounds. It's like, oh, he punted it out of bounds. Tough break for the dogs. <laughs> like awkward silence. To his credit, Jesse Palmer, he was like the respectful kid next door who didn't want to like make fun of the crazy old man to his face. So, you know, Brent, I think uh, they might have downed that just inside the, the yard marker there. Like 10 yards inside the line. Whatever. I mean, is this the most frustrating program in the country? Six games in, we don't know if we're any good or not. I'm pretty good, maybe. I like the uh, offensive line, the rushing game in the back, which would be huge. Six sacks, yeah, okay, some of them were bullshit, but so what? Compared, we were, had five in the entire season before that, and we have Vanderbilt coming up, short week, and then a bye before the game in Jacksonville. A lot of people are saying that our game might be moved up uh, because LSU and Florida need to reschedule their postponed game and that's the only open date that Florida has. But I don't think that's going to work. Just the logistics involved, all the rich people, all the South Georgia alums who have that booked in advance, you got to get a four-day hotel room, stay down in Jacksonville. They're going to revolt and riot in the streets. They have too much money and too much pull for that to happen in a game that has nothing to do with us. So I don't see that happening. But sometimes following this program is so frustrating. Is it easier to be a Rutgers fan? They lost 78-0 to Ohio State. Next year, Scarlet Knights, next year. Is it hilariously tragic or tragically hilarious? Is it like a horror and a comedy? You see, I'm setting this up for the movie section of the podcast. Seamless, right? Let's talk about horror movies. Um, I love horror movies when they're well done, but a lot of them are really shitty. Um, Halloween, I love to go down to uh, the Plaza Theater. For your local guys, check it out um, in Atlanta on Ponce. They have um, they showed Phantasm tonight. They're doing Monkey Shines. I saw The Exorcist at midnight last Halloween. There they always show good all horror movies there. Even though the genre itself is kind of shitty, 
Um, right up there with romantic comedies. No genre is more formulaic, more exploitative, poorly written, poorly acted, and did they ever milk it? And this history goes back. You think, oh my God, they're not doing another Jeepers Creepers movie or Saw 10 or all that shit. But it actually goes back from the beginning of uh, Universal Horror Movies, and we're just going to take Frankenstein as an example. Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, House of Frankenstein, Sanford and Frankenstein, Jesse James versus Frankenstein. Okay, one of those was made up. There was not a Sanford and Frankenstein, but there was a Red Fox mummy vehicle in 1935. It was called... You big mummy. You big mummy? Huh? Huh? You don't get this on Dog Nation Daily. Ingrates. Uh, point being, when you saturate a genre like that, it's bound for parody. And eventually came Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Jesse James meets Frankenstein, of course, Young Frankenstein, Blackenstein, Frankenhooker, Frankenweenie, and I, I could have easily used zombies or slasher films, uh, Point being that genres inevitably move to a point of parody. And the more saturated, the more milk they are, the quicker they move to that parody point. And uh, in film school, they have these, like, criticism that's ridiculous. I really didn't pay much attention to it. But one stuck with me now is Tom Schatz, and he wrote this thing about film genres. And it would uh, inevitably go to a point of parodies and say, like, the Great Train Robbery invest- invented the Western stagecoach, perfected it, and then you get in this, like the good, the bad, the ugly. It's like almost like a parody, self-aware hyperviolence. Uh, and I, I love Frankenhooker myself. Uh, it doesn't have to be say like a real parody, parody like Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. It can be, but I mean, just something where one of the traditional elements of that genre is inverted. Uh, side note about film school, like you read these ridiculous essays, they're really pretentious and really scholarly, and you'll 30 minutes of debating, why is this chair put in this shot in Magnolia? And you know, and the Marxists will say, it's there to represent the oppression of the American labor force, uh, you know, the chair shows the lazy American worker getting complacent, and then you'll have like the feminists say, well, you know, I think the chair is there to show... Reinforced traditional gender roles, the dominating male reclining chair in the center of the shot, in the center of the frame. And then you'll like go on a set and you'll meet the guy and it'll be just this like fat union prop master with his gut hanging out and a belt, cargo shorts. And he'll say, why'd you put the chair in? I'll just be like, well, you know, we had leftover chairs from Cop Rock, which just canceled. Oh, they were on sale or whatever. So when you cross the line into parody, and parody is easy to do. If you do too much of it, you'll have scary movie 1 through 15. But how do you do a parody that's simultaneously an homage and keep it funny and scary? Few movies do that because tone is such an elusive and hard to define thing in a film. So I'm singling out the best movie ever to do that, 1981, Universal's An American Werewolf in London, directed by John Landis. And I'm picking it out just because... Yeah, you know, it's like the McDLT. The hot side stayed hot, the cool side stayed cool. It came in a big styrofoam fucking VHS tape thing in 1981. I know it didn't, but the scary parts of that movie are really scary. They really make you shit your pants. Like, there's a dream within a dream sequence. There are, like, Nazi stormtroopers, like, kill everyone in his family in Long Island. And I'm not, not like the fun stormtroopers that, like, shoot and miss everything. Fucking Nazi stormtroopers with pig faces. It was horrifying. And it's actually really funny and really natural. But it's not the only self-aware horror movie around that time. And I, 
it's a kind of a cool thing if you notice in all these movies they talk about the other movies very meta movie within a movie thing uh david naughton who plays um um uh david couldn't think of that he had the same name of his character and i still couldn't think of it anyway him and jack are sitting around griffin dunn they're sitting around the beginning of the slaughtered lamb they talk about horror movies He's watching, at one point, he's actually watching the 1941 Lon Chaney. Not Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney was Phantom of the Opera. Don't make that mistake if you ever want to win bar trivia. Uh, he's watching the Wolfman movie, and it's not really unique. If you remember Return of the Living Dead? In the beginning of that, and that's much lighter tone than the kind of preachy, over-the-top George Romero movies. Um, they're talking about Night of the Living Dead in Return of the Living Dead. And that movie scared the shit out of me, too, because the nice guy who was on the Pathmark commercials when I was a kid, he's a zombie in the first five minutes of the movie. Fright Night, the original Fright Night with Roddy McDowell. Yeah, they sit around and watch horror movies all the time. Monster Squad, they sit around and watch the old Universal horror movies. So it's not necessarily a new thing. And, of course, House is another great, or Night of the Comet. House has Richard Maul, Bull from Night Court, and Norm from Cheers in the same movie. So it's got to be good. <sighs> But none of them are as good as American Werewolf in London. And, you know, the little details, you can tell that Landis is a fan of those movies as well. So it's like, not really a mockery, but it's like an homage more. You know, it has all the classic Wolfman aesthetic. The fog, the moors, the full moon, uh, all that shit. And the comedy doesn't take away from the film's impact. I think it reinforces it. When Jack and David are walking on the moors at night after being kicked out of the slaughtered lamb... The dialogue that goes between them, they talk about getting laid, they talk about traveling, they're college kids. You know, it's really natural, and you laugh along with them. If you watch DVD commentary, you know that Griffin Dunn actually had a booger. That's why they were laughing, for you method actors there. Um, and then they get torn to shreds by a werewolf, and it hits you harder. It's more realistic, not less realistic, because they're not some cardboard characters that you don't care about. And, uh, I mean, I love the whole movie, but I really like the tension at the slaughtered lamb. Like, these interlopers stumble upon this superstitious local hostile pub. And the tension builds, and it's like, you know, in a horror movie nowadays, you would um, never, you'd have, to, you'd have to pay off immediately, and it wouldn't build the tension. Oh, fuck. I gotta flip this on. I think I burnt it on one half. Hang on. Alright, we do the flip, and it's like black on one side, and it smells like Instead of having that good aromatic pumpkin smell, it smells like burning leaves in this apartment. But at least half of it looks good. So let me flip that and just lower the jet. Cook your omelets over low flame, especially if you're podcasting while cooking omelets. Anyway, the whole film is great, but I love the slaughtered lamb portion of the film. The first third of the film, to me, works best. And if you're not into the history of film or you don't care about genres or any of the shit I talk about on here, um, you still need to see it because unlike any other Wolfman movie, it shows the transformation. Rick Baker won an Oscar for special effects. They created the Oscar for this movie before us. There wasn't a special effects Oscar. And they show it in harsh light. They don't cheat or anything or do any cheap camera tricks. They show it all. Uh, and if you were going to turn into a Wolfman, and hopefully one day I will, don't you think it would be painful? I mean, you're talking about like a change in your physiology. So David Naughton does his best to sell it, he's screaming and everything, and you know how it ends, whether it's a parody or whether it's an homage or whatever. The monster's got to pay for his crimes at the end, you got to round up at least the modern equivalent of villagers with torches, storm the castle, and he's got to take a bullet. 
Didn't have to be a silver bullet, but it had to be a bullet from someone he loved. Aw. You gotta have rules. Doesn't matter what the rules are, as long as they're consistent. Unlike some of the officiating in the George game. That was an interception, goddammit. Anyway, you gotta have rules. And it's got builds of this tragic, almost heavy-handed, and then this music kicks in at the end, right here. So what that tells me, hey, it's a werewolf movie. I'll take this shit seriously, because we don't. It's probably the best ending to a werewolf movie, not counting the last scene of Teen Wolf where the extra pulled his cock out. Yeah, it really happened. You can Google it. Anyway, speaking of sexually repressed hairy cannibal werebeast, Brett Musburger. He gets all excited that Ugga is at the game. And he's calling for his cameraman, saying how Ugga is his favorite mascot, like everybody's. And um, can't find Ugga, so he, the camera guy gets a shot of hairy dog. And what's worse, Brett Musburger doesn't know the difference between Ugga and hairy dog, or that he doesn't realize that Ugga's not at the game until the fourth quarter, or that. Well, gotta protect Ugga. He can't make Ugga make the trip in the hurricane. But fuck the players and coaches. That dog's got the life. So the story I heard that Ugga uh, conditions were bad in Savannah, where Ugga lives, and he couldn't get out with his uh, entourage. Couldn't make it up to Columbia. Anyway, but you know the hurricane really wasn't a factor for this game. Anyway, if you look at the Notre Dame North Carolina game, North Carolina State game, that was like fucking biblical. Uh, Anyway, you know, the field seemed fine, and Greg McGarity has since said, as we go to the Georgia Football Classic Cinema and Omelets news desk, uh, Georgia's not going to move the game, the Florida game, to the 22nd. They've ruled it out. They said, no, they're going to lose the money. So I don't know what LSU and Florida are going to do to make up that game, but they got to think of something, because it is going to come down to the standings. And uh, hang on, let me just get a bite of this here. All right, so here's the deal. Yes, you can put pumpkin in an omelet, but wouldn't you rather put some beef and cheese in there? Because the pumpkin stuff, even though I browned it, it's still kind of dry in the middle. I would say you'd have to cut it really thin, uh, or like maybe buy if there's like prepackaged pumpkin slices from Trader Joe's, which I'm sure there is because they just fucking pumpkin everything. But still, pretty good omelet. It really, it smells like fall in my apartment, and that alone is worth making that omelet. Okay, so what killed the horror movie? The sequel. I like that part in Scream 2 when they talk about how the sequel killed it. Um, you know, American Werewolf in London is the pinnacle of the practical effects movement. If you think you can do everything in CGI and you want to watch Star Wars Episode 2, The Phantom Menace, where I was Episode 1, and look at the difference between American Werewolf in London, and of course they, it, they t- it takes them years, but they make a shitty sequel to American Werewolf in Paris, which has none of the tone of the original, and it's all CGI, and the werewolf looks so, so shitty and fake, you actually miss Lon Chaney Jr. and his, like, hairy gloves. But how's this for a sequel? 2016 Georgia football. It's supposed to feel different. It's a new culture, right? Hmm, let's do some homework. 2015, Georgia comes in 4-0, and they get blown out against Alabama. They blow a 24-3 lead against Tennessee. And end up in the tax layer, lose to Florida, and end up in the taxlayer.com bowl. 2016 Georgia comes in 3-0, gets blown out at Ole Miss, blows a 17-0 lead against Tennessee, and probably going to go back to the tax layer bowl, which is in 
Jacksonville. So it comes down to our boogeyman, our madman Martz, our Freddy Krueger, our Jason Voorhees, our Grayson Lambert. Thing that will not stay dead, the Jacksonville game. Look, you know, the time will tell what Kirby's going to do with Georgia. I, I hear good recruiting news constantly. Aubrey Solomon, defensive tackle, decommitted from Michigan. Georgia's the front runner now. I keep hearing good news. But as of now, if this is really going to be a culture change or whatever, we have to win that game in Jacksonville. Doesn't mean it's going to be a disaster of the Kirby Smart era. It doesn't mean we're not going to win next year, but it'll really feel like the same old thing with yet another uninspired loss in Jacksonville. So we have Vanderbilt, then we have a bye. And, you know, Florida may not have the bye the week before if they have to play LSU. So, you know, like it has in so many seasons, this all comes down to that game. You know, like last season, we got those back-to-back losses, and the rest of the schedule, there just wasn't any really good team. So what does it prove? Um, so we'll see. The Florida game is such a personal thing for Georgia fans. Will this season be the beginning of a new era? Will it be a new movement of comedy and horror in film like an American Werewolf in London and House? Or is it going to be something really shitty? The same old thing. Is it going to be like the American Werewolf in Paris of football seasons? Or if you don't like horror movies, Caddyshack too. Because I love the new spirit. I was for, you know, we love Coach Rick. He elevated the program. But again, this season is not really the make or break season for Kirby, but you're looking for little things. So does it feel like, I mean, we're going to possibly end up with the exact same record as last year, which would be fine. I just want the win in Jacksonville. Auburn's actually playing some good football too. So you really can't look at the schedule the rest of the way and say that's a win, that's a loss. You know, with this team, who knows? Speaking of stories that won't die, Eason was so bad against South Carolina, that we actually have to say the name Grayson Lambert again. Uh, Some people think they should have went to Grayson Lambert in the fourth, and Kirby Smart didn't want to do it. Uh, You know, he didn't want to disrupt his rhythm or whatever. Not that Easton had any rhythm on Sunday. But, um, you know, it could really have some bad long-term effects, shake his confidence, you know, mess it up. So they didn't do it, which is fine with me. I would love to see a balanced offense uh, home against Vanderbilt next Saturday. That would be great. Um, this is totally unrelated, but I watched Phantasm on Sci-Fi Channel last night. You know, it's like a killer silver ball that like stabs this guy in the head. And he, and he like pissed himself while he was stabbed in the head and blood squirted everywhere. And right there I was thinking about five-star wide receiver Demetrius Robinson. Well, I mean, it's kind of true because I was listening to Dog Nation Daily while I was watching Phantasm. Uh, Jeff Sintel had a good note about Demetrius Robinson. Like I said, five-star. He got away. It was down to, to Georgia and Cal, of all schools. He went right through National Signing Day. took forever, milked the process. And he's at Cal now with five touchdowns. And boy, could Georgia ever use a big, physical, five-star wide receiver like that. You know, can't get them all. It sucks. But what are you going to do? But interesting note for you uh, weird weirdos that follow recruiting like me. All right, that's all the time we have. Thanks, everyone, for clicking. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe on iTunes to Georgia Football Classic Sentiment Omelets. Next week, Vanderbilt, some more horror movies. And I don't know what kind of omelet, but it's got to be better than this dry as a holy Eucharist pumpkin omelet. So we're going to try something else seasonal. I don't know, put a bunch of fucking Kit Kat bars in an omelet. We'll think of something. Everyone else, remember, when you're walking back from a football game on the foggy moors of Athens on a moonlit night, beware the werewolf's howl. 
Uh, wrong one. I mean this one. In the middle of now, when the full moon's high, 